Now let me ask you a question this morning concerning the accountability of a child. If you were able to follow that argument, would you raise your hand? Just raise it high so I can see it. All right? That tells me you're accountable. That you have not died before the age of accountability. So strike one against you. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Book of Romans, we have seen in chapters 1 and 2 that there is none righteous by their own works, that it is only through the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ, that we can be saved from an eternity in hell. As Pastor Berge looks at our passage from Romans 2, verses 11 to 16, we see that although good works are an evidence of our salvation, to try and say that they are a means to our salvation is to nullify the sacrifice of Christ. Please do not leave here today thinking that Pastor Brogy teaches that salvation is by works because I do not believe that. But please don't leave here today thinking that I think that you can say you're saved and never have your life change. There are many who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Let me show you one other passage. Turn to the book of Galatians, would you? Galatians chapter 2. There are four little books that stick together. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The subject of Galatians is sanctification, how to grow up in Christ. But to deal with these who had developed an erroneous view of sanctification, he brings them all the way back to their justification. He reminds them how they started on the basis of grace through faith and that they are now to walk on the basis of grace through faith. The problem was is that there were some false teachers who were delivering what Paul calls another gospel, which is really not another because there's only one. And he says, even if we are an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, let him be damned. What was the gospel these false teachers taught? They taught that Jesus was Lord, God in human flesh, that he came to die a substitutionary death on the cross, that he physically, literally shed his blood, was actually raised from the dead, but what he did was not enough. That you also must be circumcised in order to be saved. And people do the same thing today. We have a very large church south of us that teach what Jesus did is not enough. You must add baptism if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. Some would say membership or something else. And so Paul here in Romans, Galatians 2.15 says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. We're, we're not Gentile sinners, he argues. We're Jewish sinners, nevertheless. Knowing that a man is not saved or justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified. Drop down to verse 21 in your Bible. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He said, I'm not making God's death on the cross meaningless, because if there's something you can do to add to what Jesus did, you're nullifying his work on the cross. Now turn over to Galatians 3. 
Listen, if works could save you, Jesus would not have had to have died. That's his point in 2.21. He could have just come as a model and then he could have ascended into heaven ever before the crucifixion. But he didn't come as a model. He came as a substitute. Chapter 3, verse 8. The scripture, the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, we're going to study that in depth when we come to Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Why? For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Unless you obey the law perfectly, Paul says, you are cursed. Now understand, if you have the faith of Abraham, you turn over another page to chapter 5 and verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's not saying Christians can't sin. He's just given an exhortation in 5.16 to walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. But if you are born of the Spirit, then the direction of your life is different. Those who belong to Christ have said no to the sin in nature as a principle with all of its passions and desires. You see, theoretically, you have one of three chances of getting into heaven. And underscoring your thinking theoretically, lest you accuse me this morning of heresy. It's just like a man going to bat. Three strikes and you're out. Now, the first way you can go to heaven is to die before the age of accountability. An age, no doubt, that is different for different children. Some little children die before they are accountable before God. And by extension, I think you could add to that those who are severely mentally handicapped, who do not have the brain power to understand the gospel with the Spirit's help, and still others who maybe have been aborted or miscarried as little babies. If you want some scriptural support, let me give you at least three texts. And this is important. This is one of the most, 10 most commonly asked questions. And we're going to spend three weeks on it later this year. One helpful text would be 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23. If you know the passage, David's little infant is deathly sick. And he's praying and fasting and seeking the face of Almighty God. And by the body language, by the uh, action of his servants... They, he perceives that his little baby has now died. And of course, they're afraid to tell David. They reason if he's so grieved while his baby is alive, hoping that maybe God will intervene and heal the child, what will he do? Maybe he'll even harm himself when he finds out the baby is dead. But David, perceiving the child is dead, he gets up, he cleans up, he goes and worships God, and then he sits down for a meal. And then the servants come to him and they say, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. King David no longer had to grieve like those who had no hope because he knew at his own death he would see that child. Now there are some who sloppily exegete the passage and say, he's just going to the grave with his boy when he dies someday. They miss the whole point and spirit of the text. 
Let me give you another passage. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. Matthew 18, 1 to 14. Let me read it to you. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child and set him before them. In this case, we're not dealing with an infant like with David, but a child that the Lord sets before him in the parallel account in Luke 9, 46. It said he stood by his side. Now notice carefully what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus in this passage and other passages like it compares the kingdom of heaven to little children. Now, please understand, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth. And he never used in any of his teaching parable or, or illustrations some untruth to teach truth. Jesus, who is the truth, always used truth to teach truth. And so for Jesus to use an erroneous illustration to make a tr truth would contradict himself. And he never, ever, ever once did that. Now, drop down to verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. God obviously does not look favorably on those who physically, mentally, sexually, or in some other way abuses a child. See, he says that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 14, he plainly says, So it is, not, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Period. Jot down this text. Matthew, or Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 42. Mark 9, 33 to 42. This is a different occasion as the context indicates, but the same problem, one of their favorite discussions all the way to the upper room was to discuss who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who's going to be the big shot in the coming kingdom? It's a discussion they often got into. And Jesus would repeat himself. Why? Because we learn by repetition, and then there are always new hearers who are hearing it for the first time. Mark 9, 33, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Of course, he knew, but they kept silent. For on the way, they discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Jesus had rebuked them before, but now they're like little kids. They've gotten their hand caught in the cookie jar. And Jesus just asked the question, what, what were you guys talking about? Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them. Now, I don't know how, exactly how old this little child is, but I do know that I usually did not hold my children in my arms, at least not for very long, by the time they reached seven or eight years of age. In either case, it's a small child. And Jesus says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And again, the Lord's repeating himself for emphasis, a teaching tool that you need to emulate. If you hear me preach and repeat myself and you get turned off, then go home and confess your sin because you have a heart problem. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, 
It would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Notice Jesus describes this little one as having faith. The tender and receptive spirit of very little children, Jesus equates to an adult who understands or believes in him. Mark 10, across the page, verse 13, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I'm so pleased with hundreds of our people, either through the Awana ministry or children's choirs or Sunday morning in Sunday school or in ministry in our nurseries at different times during the week when we gather or in vacation Bible school and other events, their ministry to little children. A mark of Christ-likeness, a mark that you are a growing Christian is that you're not bothered by children. You know, we have hundreds of children here every Sunday, over 400 on a typical Sunday. And they need to be cared for. And many that are coming do not have parents who are believers. And they need to be loved. And so many of you do not have the attitude, well, this is my family. And I'm just going to hang with my family on Sunday morning. No, you have the attitude that Christ had towards children and that the disciples were to have, that you ministered to children even that were not your children. You know, you have 168 hours in a week. You can still worship corporately as a family every Sunday morning. We only have your kids at best four hours. Listen, the other 164 hours, you can teach your children as you walk on the way, as you rise up and as you sit down. Now, let me ask you a question this morning concerning the accountability of a child. If you were able to follow that argument, would you raise your hand? Just raise it high so I can see it. All right? That tells me you're accountable. That you have not died before the age of accountability. So strike one against you. Now, there's another theoretical way in which you could get into heaven. Theoretically, you could get into heaven if you perfectly obeyed the law of God. You say, that sounds like teaching salvation by works. No, I'm not, because no one anywhere, with the exception of the Lord Jesus, has ever perfectly obeyed the law of God. Again, I would remind you what Galatians 3.10 says. For as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. You're trying to get into heaven by obedience to the law. You're cursed. Cursed is everyone who does not abide, not by some, but by all things written in the book of the law. Unless you obey God's law perfectly, you are cursed. Now listen, if you had obeyed the law of God perfectly, you would be sinless and you would not need a savior. And if you think you're sinless, the Bible says you're lying to yourself in 1 John 1 and you're lying to others and you're lying about God because God says from Genesis to Revelation, we are all sinners. And so let me ask you, has anyone here this morning perfectly obeyed the law of God? In fact, let me get some congregational response while I'm asking some questions. How many of you ever in your life has ever told a lie, a, 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 a lie? maybe a small lie, maybe a big lie? How many of you ever once have told a lie? Raise your hand. All right, good. With the exception of that one guy up in the balcony who's lying again, you know. <laughs> let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever once stolen something. Now, wait a minute. Maybe a nickel off your brother's desk. Maybe an answer off your neighbor's paper. Maybe a hymn book 
in the rack in front of you. Maybe you've robbed the bank. How many of you have ever, ever stolen anything? Raise your hand. All right, put them down. Basically, what you're telling me is that we have a congregation of liars and thieves this morning. But the point is, is that strike two against you. Cursed is everyone who does not obey the entire law of God. So theoretically, if you could live a perfect life, you could be saved by that. But you never have, and I never have. And unless you flee to Jesus Christ for salvation, it will be strike three. Now, God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment is unbiased. Fourth and finally, I want you to see that God's judgment is knowable. It's knowledgeable, excuse me, it's knowledgeable. Look, if you will, now at verse 16, where he concludes the text. He speaks of that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Now, verses 14 and 15 are a kind of parenthesis with verse 16 resuming the argument. Follow the flow here. In verses 1 through 4, his argument is you cannot escape God's judgment. In verses 5 through 10, his argument is that God's judgment is righteous, that his justice will be vindicated because a man's walks, walk will show whether or not he's ever been saved. Verses 11 to 15, his argument is that God's judgment is impartial. That Jew and Gentile, pagan and religious man alike, have knowledge of God and therefore are accountable to God. But then in verse 16, he wants us to know that God's judgment is knowledgeable. And to explain that, he underscores three simple truths. First, he tells us that God's judgment will include the secret areas so that there will be no miscarriage of judgment. Secondly, that God's judgment will be through Jesus Christ. And third, that God's judgment will be connected to what Paul calls my gospel. Now, let's follow that through. First, he tells us that God's judgment concerns the secrets of man, the hidden things in this life. The word secret is the Greek word krypta. We get our English word crypt from it. It is used in the first century of, uh, of some subterranean place where people would store their food or their groceries or, or a cellar in a man's house. And Paul was saying, listen, there's coming a day when God is going to raid the cellar of your life. There's coming a day when God is going to blow the lid off. There's coming a day when God is going to open the closet and the skeletons are coming to dancing out. There's coming a day when things that no one else knows, God is going to reveal. The hidden things, the secret things, things your mother never knew, things your wife never knew, things your husband never knew, things your business partner never knew, things your school teacher never knew things that you have long since forgotten, God will bring to light. He will bring them forward at this coming judgment. And notice, he says that this judgment will be through Jesus Christ. Why? Because as Jesus said, all judgment has been given to the Son from the Father. And so repeatedly in the Gospels, you see judgment connected to the second member of the Trinity. Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He'll say on another occasion, depart from me, accursed ones, into the fire prepared for the devil. 
and his angels. Paul declared to those up there on Mars Hill in Athens that God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter affirmed to Cornelius in his house that Jesus is the one who's been appointed as judge of both the living and the dead. So this judgment is through Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, that ought to be a comfort to you that your judge is also your savior. But Paul says that this judgment is according to my gospel, what in chapter 1 he called God's gospel, what he called the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what he here calls my gospel. And unless Paul's gospel becomes your gospel, you're in trouble. Now, how do we apply this text? Let me suggest three applications as I close. Number one, this passage teaches me that God does not have favorites. God does not play favorites. Some people think that somehow some way God will change his standard or, or their reasoning, I just need to get on God's good side. But Romans 2.11 blows that notion out of the water when he says, for there is no partiality with God. Now, I didn't highlight it, but I probably should have. The word partiality is actually two Greek words bled together. One word means to accept or to receive. The other part of that word means the face. And so put together, it meant to receive by faith. That's the word that we translate partiality, to receive by faith, literally. And really, if you think about it, we still use that word in the same way today. We speak of someone who has lost face and that they're embarrassed by something they've done. Or we speak of someone getting face time, that is, the attention of another individual. Well, the Greeks would refer to someone who is wealthy or or powerful, and, and they would use that reputation or that wealth or that power to get face with another person. But the myth that men have is that somehow they can get face time with God apart from Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father but through Son. God is not partial towards anyone. You will never have face time with God Almighty in heaven unless you first have face time with God the Son here on earth. Secondly, I learned from this text of Scripture that every person knows enough to be accountable and guilty to God. Everyone in this room, everyone in the sound of my voice on this planet knows enough to be accountable to God. God will judge people whether they had a Bible or no Bible, as Romans 12 through, uh, 2, 12 to 15 indicate. In the judgment day, you will not be able to say, well, I tried to keep the Ten Commandments, or I didn't have the Ten Commandments, unless you have been forgiven because the Ten Commandments and other laws just reveal your sinfulness. Paul will say in Romans 3 that the law is like a mirror. When you look into a, a mirror, it reveals your face is dirty. When you look into God's mirror, it shows your soul is dirty. The law of God was not given to save you. It was given, as Luther said, to terrify you, to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. And so God is clear that men have some knowledge of God, whether it's in written law, whether it's in the law written on their hearts, whether it's in the creation around them. 
such that the millions in Africa who have never heard of Jesus, they are guilty. The millions in China who have never heard the name of Jesus are guilty. The millions in India who have never heard the name of Jesus are guilty. There is no excuse and there is no escape because God has given some information. And as we went to great detail in Romans 1, if a man will respond to that information, that light that God has given, God will give more light. And the opposite is true. If a man will suppress the light that God has given, then their foolish heart will be darkened. And so no one will be able to claim some kind of stance before God because they had been cut short. As Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says, there's no creature hidden before his sight. They will be naked and bare before God Almighty. In the words of Romans 3, every mouth will be shut. No excuses, no pleas. Guilty in absolute silence. Now let me apply this text to those of you who are saved. Because it's really easy to take a text like this and just dump it on the lost man. The lost moral man. And certainly Paul is trying to equip us, to give us a a polemic to be able to defend our faith well. But some of you are just like the religious moral man. Your your religion is external. It's become external. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you burnout. That's not what he said. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And some of us have adapted kind of an external Christianity. We've been saved, but the passion and the love that we once have for Christ has dwindled. And like the religious lost man, we're going through all the motions and jumping through all the hoops, but our heart isn't there. And it's like the Lord who accuses the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. And you've cooled off. And your heart has grown cold. Do you remember that encounter that Jesus had as the resurrected Lord with Peter? Three times he asked him, do you love me? He didn't say, do you love people? He didn't say, do you love to serve? He said, do you love me? Do you love him this morning? Passionately? Freshly? If you don't, your your, your spiritual arteries have gotten a little bit clogged. And as a Christian, you need to confess that before the Lord and receive his cleansing. And let him remove the blur off of your life and restore it with a passionate love for Christ. Our Father, we live in days of compromise. We recognize that. So many Christians who are compromised in their behavior and their actions and their thought life and their viewing standards and their listening life and the things that they give themselves to day in and day out. And they can't remember the last time they had a real burden for someone who was lost and a real compassion and a fervor for the Great Commission. 
God, we live in a country of compromise and we acknowledge that our sins are great and people just don't even care. May judgment begin with the household of faith. And I pray today, our Father, for someone who's come and they're not really sure that if this were their last day, they would go to heaven. And as I have been speaking, your spirit has been speaking. Help someone today, Father, with a pseudo-faith. It's intellectual only. They've gone through the hoops. They've walked an aisle. They've shaken a preacher's hand. They've prayed a prayer. They've been baptized. They've joined churches after church, but their life has never changed because they've never really met Christ. Help them today in their moral goodness to repent. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For a copy of today's message from Romans chapter 2, part 2 of The Judgment of the Respectable Sinner, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets available at the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. As always, you can call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy Just ask for program ROM8 for today's program or for any of the other programs in this study of Romans or any of Dr. Brogy's other studies. Tomorrow we begin a look at the living dead. Join us then as we search the scriptures.